Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and I want to remind you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it right now. We're on social at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch available, like our niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com, and we have our Patreon channel where we give at least three bonus episodes of the show per month available at patreon.com slash pop pantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode and as a reminder germane to our topic of today's episode our last patreon episode is a deep dive into how mariah carey became the queen of christmas before we get back to mariah carey i want to remind you that gorgeous gorgeous the last one of the year will be happening in los angeles on december 16th this is my queer pop party obviously this party will be at resident in downtown los angeles and tickets are available in the show notes of this episode we are also still accepting Pantheon tier dispute voice memos and emails. If you are unhappy with where somebody ended up in the Pop Pantheon in this year's episodes, please write to us or send us a voice note at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Let us know why. Give us your argument and you might hear yourself on that episode coming up. All right. Circling back to Mariah. As I mentioned, we have been rolling out Mariah episodes recently, and this will be the second installment of our main feed episodes on Mariah Carey. Last week, we talked about her early life through her seminal 1995 album, Daydream. And this week, we are picking up with her magnum opus, in her own words, 1997's Butterfly. So we'll be talking about that, and obviously her cleaving from her husband, Tommy Mottola, and her 1999 album, Rainbow, her epic catastrophe, 2001's film and soundtrack glitter and then her attempted comeback with 2002's charm bracelet next week obviously we will pick up with 2005's comeback album the emancipation of mimi so without further ado here is part two of our series on the great mariah carey All right, let's go. mariah carey's arrival on the pop scene was one of the most explosive in the history of the genre four consecutive multi-platinum albums two of which had gone diamond in the u.s alone and 11 number one singles all but one of which she'd either written or co-written and all in the span of five years. On her most recent album, 1995's Daydream, and especially on the seminal remix of its lead single, Fantasy, Mariah had also taken significant steps towards artistic credibility and, most importantly, autonomy from her controlling husband and label boss, Tommy Mottola. But this emancipation had only just begun. As Mariah entered the latter part of the 1990s and into the early 2000s, she'd achieved both an artistic peak and personal freedom, finally resting full agency over her work from Mottola and divorcing him in the process, all of which culminated in an historic $100 million new record deal with Virgin Records. But thanks to machinations both inside and out of her control, she'd also reach an embarrassing professional nadir, one from which it once appeared she'd never recover. Through it all, some pretty epic highs and deeply depressing lows, the middle period of Mariah's career saw her producing some of her most fascinating, liberated, and enduring music, hits that reverberate through pop to this very day. Okay. Look. Cool. 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 Cool.
In the lapse between Daydream and 1997's Butterfly, Mariah and Tommy were essentially living separate lives. That didn't stop him from attempting to control and in many instances surveil her every move. But her massive fame and power, along with the hard-won successes of her embrace of hip-hop on hits like the Fantasy Remix and Always Be My Baby, had finally granted her the artistic freedom that she'd sought her entire career. In conceiving of and making Butterfly, Mariah began to fully cash in, further remaking her sound and image as she saw fit. This meant looking more directly towards contemporary black music styles, as well as writing much more personal, revelatory, and idiosyncratic lyrics. To do so, she employed some of her most influential cohorts in the melding of pop, rap, and R&B sensibilities. Puff Daddy, Missy Elliott, and the Trackmasters, just to name a few. Many of these songs, such as Breakdown, in which Mariah essentially sung-rapped in the style of duet partners Bone Thugs and Harmony, saw her vastly change her singing style, moving away from acrobatic belting and towards a more nuanced coup and syncopated rhythmic, often extraordinarily complex cadences and vocalizations. On tracks like the mob deep sampling The Roof back in time, Mariah chronicled a sensual rendezvous with a new lover, rendering simmering adult sexuality in a way that she'd never explored on previous work. In her marketing materials, music videos, and live appearances too, Mariah embraced a more provocative, sexually unencumbered image, from the golden tube top paired with a belly chain she donned on the album's cover, to casting herself in the role of a Bond girl, emerging from the sea in a flesh-toned bikini in the clip for the album's lead single, Honey. Released within weeks of the news of her and Tommy's split, Honey was Mariah's third single to debut at number one and her 12th overall chart topper. Its groovy, propulsive beat, courtesy of Puff Daddy and a Tribe Called Quest frontman Q-Tip, complemented by Mariah's oozing, luscious vocal performance, made for the most laid-back and carnal single she'd ever released, once and for all ditching her adult contemporary prison and firmly entrenching her on mainstream pop's vanguard. Mariah has described Butterfly as her magnum opus and a turning point for both her career and life. The album debuted at number one with her biggest sales week to date and was certified five times platinum. Though it was not as commercially successful as Music Box or Daydream, it represented a necessary cleaving of new Mariah from old Mariah. MC capped off 1998 with a victory lap on the first decade of her career, performing at the inaugural VH1 Divas Live and releasing a greatest hits album, The Number Ones. The next year, she set to work on her seventh studio album, her final for Sony. Eager to permanently sever ties with Sony and Matola, Mariah completed the album in just three months, once again shaking up her team of producers and songwriters and moving yet further towards R&B and hip-hop-oriented music. The result was 1998's Rainbow, which produced two more number one smashes, Heartbreaker, a wonderful if slightly too filial knockoff of fantasy, and the schlocky 98 Degrees featuring ballad Thank God I Found You. Rainbow was certified triple platinum and sold 8 million copies worldwide. Having fulfilled her contract, Mariah signed a new deal with Virgin in 2001 reported to be worth as much as $100 million, and which signaled a fresh start totally free from Tommy. For her first project on the label, Mariah settled on the soundtrack for a movie inspired by her life, called Glitter. 
The rollout was, from the beginning, one of pop history's most colossal disasters. In June 2001, Mariah released the first single from the soundtrack, the post-disco homage Loverboy. The song was marred in controversy from the jump after it was revealed that, in an act of vengeance, Matola secured the rights to the sample Mariah planned to use for his new signee Jennifer Lopez's I'm Real, forcing Mariah to select a new one at the last minute. Then, in a much-publicized appearance promoting the track on Total Request Live, Mariah arrived on set wearing an oversized t-shirt with Loverboy airbrushed on it, pushing an ice cream cart, then took the shirt off to reveal a halter top and shorts, and really was acting just generally kind of loopy. The media went wild, calling the reveal a quote-unquote strip tease and suggesting Mariah was having a breakdown. A few days later, she posted a voice note on her website saying she wanted to take a break. Then, news broke that Mariah had been hospitalized due to exhaustion. It was later revealed that she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The movie Glitter, released on September 11th, 2001, was panned by critics and flopped. And Loverboy, while peaking at number two on the Hot 100, failed to gain traction at radio and quickly fizzled. Glitter became Mariah's first album ever not to produce a number one single and just barely went platinum in the United States, a meteoric fall from grace for an artist who just a year earlier and for a decade prior seemed to effortlessly dominate the charts. Mariah took a step back to rest and ceased the Glitter promo cycle entirely. In her absence, she became a pop cultural punchline. Glitter earned Mariah Worst Actress at the Golden Raspberry Awards, while late night hosts mocked her relentlessly. The entire ordeal prompted Virgin to drop Mariah from her mega deal, paying out $28 million as a kid. Undeterred, Mariah flew to Capri to rest and begin work on a comeback album. She signed a new deal with Island Def Jam and released Charm Bracelet in 2002, barely a year after Glitter. A continuation of the contemporary hip-hop and R&B inflections of her recent work, along with some ballads that gestured towards her early glories, the album failed to produce any hit singles and sold only a bit more than Glitter had the previous year. A comeback Charm Bracelet was most certainly not. As the new millennium dawned and a new cohort of teen pop stars took hold of the zeitgeist, Mariah found herself increasingly pegged as a relic of a past era, a has-been with her greatest hits behind her. Indeed, to come back from a fall from grace this epic is ordinarily unheard of in pop music. But as it turns out, Mariah is no ordinary pop star. Here with me to discuss the roller coaster of the middle period of Mariah Carey's career is the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and author of the book Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, Aisha Harris. All right, so I am here with the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and author of the book Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shaped Me, Aisha Harris. Aisha, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm such a big fan, and you're here for a very important episode. Not just because we're talking about Mariah, which we're going to be doing over the course of a series of episodes, but we're here to talk about a very critical part of Mariah's work and career. Perhaps the most critical. I mean, that's arguable, but I think there's a lot in here that shapes how we think about Mariah as an artist and how we think about Mariah as a celebrity and persona, I think. Absolutely. It's a period of her career that I would say is defined by personal and creative breakthroughs and zeniths that we're going to touch on. And then, of course, a lot of turmoil and a period of commercial decline, perhaps the most notable period of commercial decline in her career that, of course, sets up a 
very unexpected comeback. In emancipation, as it were. Yes, the emancipation. (laughs) Sets up her emancipation in general. I think more or less, as I've been sort of formulating what this episode is going to be based around, it's the idea that the Mariah we sort of know today, both in terms of her artistry and innovations in the field, as well as a lot of the ingredients that shape the iconic camp diva persona that we also recognize Mariah for come into focus or find their genesis in this moment in her career. Do you agree with that characterization? Oh, absolutely. This whole period was just so crucial. It was both like the legend making era of her and also establishing herself as someone who could rise from the ashes, Mm. you know? So yes, I'm so glad we're talking about this. (laughs) Yes, I am too. And I'm also going to talk about, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me because I know that this is a period of particular faves for you, but so much of my favorite Mariah music happens in this swath of albums. So I'm super excited to talk about all of that with you. And Mariah's a delight. As I'm recording these episodes, I'm just remembering one of the most fun and delightful pop cultural figures to discuss, both because there's just so much great music and also because she is just an incredibly entertaining figure. The story of the career is like a modern American tome or something like that. Like it's just very entertaining and rich and says a lot about our pop cultural history in general. She was a generator of a lot of movements in pop culture. She reflected a lot of things in pop culture. So I'm just having the best time making these. So I'm so excited to dive into this with you. So I guess my first question on our journey here through this middle period of Mariah's career is sort of to set us up How would you characterize Mariah's image and musical persona as we enter this period of her career that we're going to talk about today? And I want to set up for the audience, even though we will have just gone on this journey in the first episode, how the world viewed her before Butterfly and the divorce from Tommy. What was she seen as as a musician and as a pop cultural figure? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I was only like seven or eight around this period of time, which is also why I consider this my favorite period, because this is where I actually fell in love with her. Yes. But I think that's part of it is that my first introduction to her was Emotions, Music Box, and it was through my mother. And my mother was really into her. And I think her persona at that time was we didn't really know much about her personal life at all. Mm. Her voice was first and foremost. That was what everyone talked about. That was what we cared about. She also was kind of in this period of she wore a lot of black. She would sometimes show a little bit of cleavage or clavicle, (laughs) but she wasn't doing the whole sexy sex thing that Janet was doing or that TLC was doing, or even Whitney in that era when she was doing The Bodyguard. Like, Whitney was getting funky in a way that Mariah hadn't yet. Mm -hmm. So she had already laid the foundation for the hints of R&B, the hints of more hip-hop. Dream Lover obviously has a little bit of hip-hop in that, but she She was very much still in that adult contemporary world Mm. from the very surface level. If you had to define her period of the 90s, I think there's like the big three of pop stars in that moment. There's Mariah, there's Whitney and there's Celine. Mm. That's just the sugarcoated version of it. When you go deeper, obviously, they have so many differences and approaches, but they were kind of the big three, the big three women with the huge voices. And I think that once we get into this period, we see her doing more with her voice, not as much belting. Don't get me wrong. Like fantasy 
that was very belty. But she's also playing more with her lower register and staying deeper tones and, and more falsetto, but light falsetto. And I think that this was definitely a turning point. Yes. And we see her going even deeper and deeper into hip hop and R&B. For sure. I mean, I feel like the last record preceding this moment, Daydream feels like a very transitional moment between early Mariah, which I sort of characterize as those three records, and then this mid-period of Mariah, mm -hmm. which I think kind of really begins with Butterfly. And it's interesting because Daydream is maybe her biggest album of all time or one of her biggest albums of all time. Yeah. So it's hard to think of that as a transitional moment. But that album, I felt like had kind of one foot in the old AC Mariah zone and then one foot in the future of Mariah. And obviously the crucible for that transition is the fantasy remix. Maybe the single most important moment in Mariah's musical career yep. where she essentially announced herself as the innovator that was going to help facilitate the movement of hip hop culture into mainstream pop, you know, in a way that other artists had gestured at, like Mary J. Blige. And it's not saying that she was the first to do, but I think she was the person that probably was the main crux of what allowed that to meld together. Yeah. And I think that fantasy remix is the moment where that happens. And I think Mariah's status as innovator, as credible musician, begins at that moment. And I don't know if people even gave her that benefit at that moment. I'm not sure if people really gave her her props. I think a big part of Mariah's career is she's often not fully given her props in general. I right. think that's something she personally struggles with a lot. I mean, there's that meme of, I'm a songwriter, I'm a songwriter first, I'm a songwriter <laughs> first. It's her yes. mantra that she's constantly relaying to people. But I think that that speaks to a deeper struggle. And I think this pertains a lot to her status as a black woman in pop. I think it pertains a lot to her status as a pure pop maker as someone who unapologetically guns for the center, I think that she is often undermined for her pretty massive innovative qualities. You know, it's interesting, Madonna is often pegged as this innovative pop star, but at the end of the day, Madonna was very much a pillager or somebody that went into other cultures and mm. borrowed, I guess would be the most friendly way of putting it. <laughs> it's a generous way. Mariah, who's often not seen as an innovator or is not given that label on the same level that a Madonna is in many instances, actually was quite innovative and I'm so excited to dig into songs like Breakdown and stuff like that today that really illustrate that there's no Drake without Mariah. There's so many ways in which Mariah literally changed the way that pop music sounded and was made. And I think that that's so important to say. And I think that I only say all of that to say the major critical establishment did not see her or give her her props in that way. I think people often wrote her off as just kind of like a powerful but unrefined instrument vocally was kind of the thing that seemed to be the story around her. Yeah, I mean, to that point, the fact that at this point there were still some people who had no idea that she was biracial right. played a huge part of that. But but I do think the major critical establishment, sure, like the Rolling Stones, the white guy institutions definitely weren't giving her credit at this time. But clearly the hip hop community was embracing her. Right. You know, if you look back on Vibe and people who were writing about her then, they embraced her and they embraced her shift into this. And I think that if you read her book, which is it's such a treasure trove. Oh, the best celebrity memoir in recent memories, in my opinion. Seriously. Also, if you haven't, you should definitely listen to it because I actually listened to it and it's great. Yes. Oh my God. One thing she keeps reiterating there is that Black people have always been in her corner. Mm. Whether it was in her personal life, when she was growing up, her cousins and her friends, her Black friends were in her corner in ways that the white people in her life often haven't been. Mm. I think this is the other crucial part about this transition period from Daydream into Butterfly. She is now breaking away 
from Tommy, who she says very clearly did not really like the fact that she was biracial and tried to sort of tone that down so that the public actually didn't really know unless they were paying attention. So as a songwriter, as a performer, it was definitely a transition period for her, but also just her public image and her experience as a Black woman. It was also a huge transition for her to be able to embrace that in a way that she wasn't able to in the earlier part of her career. 100%. And I think we should touch briefly on the Tommy thing just before we get into Butterfly, which is to say she's basically in a very tumultuous period of her marriage to him. And a lot of it revolves around the way that he tries to control her work and to deny what turn out to be her incredibly canny instincts. I mean, Tommy Mottola hates hip hop, does not seem to have any grasp on the fact that hip hop is the future of pop music, essentially. And Mariah has her ear to the ground on that stuff. I mean, she clearly understands that. She's a product of the hip hop generation in many ways. She is obviously part and parcel with that culture in a way that has been touched upon in her music in the past. And there's moments on Daydream that even beyond fantasy, like long ago, a Jermaine Dupree production on there that really almost sounds like Mariah essentially singing over a pretty hard sounding hip hop beat. Yeah. That gesture at how much she got where Pop was going at this moment and how much this older white man was essentially denying the intuitions of this woman of color who clearly actually saw the future. And it's such an interesting moment to have to hear through that book how she had to fight for all of these things that ended up being so successful. The things that she's most remembered for in many ways. A lot of those early ballads and her early albums were obviously wildly successful. But when we look back at Mariah now in 2023, yeah. it's really the fantasy remix and a lot of the music we're going to talk about today. And of course, a lot of her music in the 2000s that I think actually is the more enduring musical legacy of Mariah Carey. So it's interesting, this period of her having to fight for her freedom personally, it felt like, and also fight for her artistry in the clutches of her husband through this period. So maybe just to wrap this Tommy discussion up, what do we know exactly about where their marriage is at mm. as she's going into the process of making Butterfly? I mean, she's fully checked out at that point. As we'll talk about, <laughs> a lot of Butterfly is inspired by her dalliance rendezvous with none other than Derek Jeter. Yes. Derek Jeter was a creative <laughs> wellspring for Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey's horniness yes. for Derek Jeter was one of her greatest oh creative inspirations. Let's say that. Ah, oh, lovely. Like, I'm so glad that pairing happened. Yeah, me too. If only because we got some great music out of it. So yeah, she was fully checked out and she was also trying to stay at the label. But she realized after a period of time that Tommy wasn't going to let that happen. He needed full control of her. So she's not only dealing with him, but also trying to deal with the label and also trying to deal with being head over heels for Derek Jeter. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned in the book, actually, how when she played some of the songs for Tommy and for the label, she was like, he knew that these were not about him because these are, <laughs> I had never felt these feelings <laughs> toward him. This was never about him. And it's just kind of wild. There's also a moment in the book where she talks about how at one point she was like her and DeBrat, which another pairing that I love. I love their friendship. Absolutely. Her and DeBrat at one point, they're supposed to be recording a song and Mariah wanted to leave Sing Sing, a.k.a. Her house. The giant secluded palace <laughs> that she lived in at the time. 
And so she and the brat snuck out, got some Burger King, and then Jermaine Dupri was like freaking out. He was like, what are you doing? Mm. Tommy's going to kill me. <laughs> can't go away. I mean, she really cast herself as this sort of Rapunzel who is also trying to escape and create this album and take her career in a new direction. Tommy didn't have really much, if any, creative control over this album. Mm-hmm. This was kind of her moment where she's, okay, I'm going to go even deeper into R&B. And yes, we have a couple of ballads here and there. But even the last ballad outside is like full on gospel. Like Mm -hmm. you've got a gospel choir. Really lays a foundation for many of her other albums to come that infuse gospel and religious and, and spiritual imagery in her songs. And yeah, and also it's called Butterfly. Right. Coming out of your cocoon, you know. An evocative <laughs> image for sure. What I want to ask in terms of setting up our musical discussion of Butterfly is something you were sort of just touching on, I guess, but maybe if we can lock this down in any way or what we know from the book or what you just know from your experiences listening to it over the last 25 years, Jesus. So long. (laughs) What do you think was her vision? Because we've touched on this idea of Mariah as an innovator. We've touched on what the fantasy remix did for pop music in general. What do you think Mariah was seeing and trying to do as she sort of entered the process of making this? What do you think her influences are, broadly speaking? And How do you think she wants to continue to change her approach building on what she had done on Daydream in the process of creating this record? Well, I think she saw that Fantasy, the remix, was such a huge hit and was such a way to gain credit within the R&B slash hip hop community. And so she went even harder. She had way more collaborations. Mm -hmm. She was working with Missy on this album. She sampled Q-Tip. She got Bone Thugs and Harmony. Like, what? All of these artists who were very of their time. And Missy hadn't quite broken out yet to the superstar we think of, but she clearly was picking from people who were both established and also were on the rise. And I think that some of the songs, especially something like Fourth of July, has a very kind of 70s soul vibe to it. Mm-hmm. So she's touching on that. She's also, of course, working with Diddy and Mace on Honey, which is borrowing from 80s sounds. The other thing I will note is that this is an album where one of the first times where she gets deeper into her own personal lore. Yes, this feels very important. It's not as scathing or specific as she gets in later albums. But when I think of Outside and also Close My Eyes, mm-hmm. Close My Eyes starts with, I was away were a child with the weight mm-hmm. of the world that I held. That song is all mm-hmm. about her childhood, <laughs> clearly. She has the sexy songs, she has the sensual songs, the love songs, but she's also, she has her Stand In Your Truth songs. And it's not like Hero, where it's kind of like, this could apply to anyone. It's like, this is about a specific person who had a traumatic childhood, who felt kind of stuck between worlds. And you get all of that from this album, for sure. A hundred percent. And I think there's two things I want to highlight about that specific thing, which is, I think Mariah 
is sort of known as a broad songwriter in many instances, especially prior to this work. Oh, yeah. Of incredible songwriter. But she mentions this. She grew up in the church of pop. A lot of her peers, you talked about, like Whitney in particular, are obviously products of the actual church. That was where they cut their teeth. Mm-hmm. Mariah is the student of pop. And that's a term that we overuse a lot, I think, in discourse. But Mariah Carey always is, in a great way, focused on having broad appeal. It's a paragon of her artistry. She wants her music to connect on a wide scale. Yeah. And I think in some of her earlier work, a song like Hero being a great example is one of my least favorite of her songs, Same. there's just this goopy, schlocky broadness that can sometimes infect some of that early work. It's sometimes it's glorious, even in its broadness, but sometimes it can feel like you want to get to know her more and she's at arm's length. And I think some of that was outside of her control, obviously. She was being, you know, yeah. Svengali'd in a lot of those early musical directions. So I think that's a really important element that clearly comes into focus here. And her abilities as a storyteller clearly become very important on this record. She's incredibly good as a songwriter at capturing moods and nostalgic moments of love, romance, and lust. Yeah. You brought up 4th of July earlier. This is a motif that she returns to on later albums again, but it's a similar vibe that she captures also in Underneath the Stars on Daydream. Oh, my favorite song on that album, I think. I feel like these are very much sister songs, as you mentioned. Yeah. They're very reverent towards 70s soul and R&B. She's great at sort of taking you into a scene in a moment and sort of capturing a specific feeling, a rush, breathless and fervid amid the dandelions. (laughs) She's great at that, both through what she's saying and how she expresses and tells stories through her voice. There are these amazing little glimpses or vignettes into like lust and love that are very evocative. You really feel transported to the scene that she paints. She also does that very effectively, obviously, on one of the most important songs on this record, speaking to the Derek Jeter thing, The Roof, which is essentially chronicling this very sexy sounding evening where she (laughs) hooks up with him on a roof and she sort of describes the rainy night, the way she felt in his arms. It's also an album that explores sexual desire, and this song illustrates that too in a way that none of her music really had in the past. I mean, there was a certain chasteness, which is weird thinking about how we think about Mariah now, but songs like The Roof, she literally talks about every time she feels the need, you know, (laughs) the need being her horniness. There's this (laughs) moment of Mariah coming into herself as a sexual being, which is incredibly important, I feel like, in the future of Mariah Carey. I mean, we think of her as someone that is proud of her sex appeal and uses that as part of her artistry and image in her latter part of her career. That comes into focus here. And the other thing that I wanted to point out is the signature Mariah writing style in the use of the 10 cent words. I mean, this is like the moment and album where we really start to get that signature sort of Mariah thesaurus thing that she does. Yeah. Nonchalant. <laughs> Nonchalant. <laughs> 
<laughs> when she stares abandonedly into the sun on Butterfly, her apprehension blows away on the roof. Yes. It's one of the great sort of signature Mariah writing styles where I think her writing stops feeling broad and starts feeling idiosyncratic and singular. I think that feels like a very important element to the way this album is written. Absolutely. I learned a lot of words because of Mariah. <laughs> abandonedly elusive. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, there's a great quote. I forget what it was, but someone in one of the reviews was like, listening to Mariah Carey music is like listening to like a kid who's reading index cards for like an SAT class. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. Uh-huh. And that's one of the reasons I love her. <laughs> unyielding too. I forgot about unyielding. <laughs> and yet they, at least for me, they work. Oh, they so work. It's incredible. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Yes. And it gives her writing personality in a way that I feel like it didn't quite have before. Exactly, exactly. One of the things I also feel like is established in this period is this sort of formula that started with Daydream, I think, but then kind of sticks through to Glitter and even Charm Bracelet. And there's like a few things I noticed. It's like, first, the lead single is usually a mid-tempo, maybe slightly up-tempo song that samples an 80s dance music hit. Mm -hmm. In this case, she's sampling the treacherous Three. Yes, the treacherous is body rock. As well as also world famous Supreme Teams, Hey DJ. Yeah. Exactly. So we have that. And then we also have, we've already talked about it, but the kind of sensual 70s sounding song mm-hmm. here. It's Fourth of July. Yes. Even Baby Doll in a little bit has that feel. For sure. And then, of course, there's the title of the album, which <laughs> I feel like whenever I think about Mariah's titles right before Emancipation, it's very like girlhood, Mad Libs, <laughs> think Lisa Frank, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Care Bears. <laughs> Right. Well, I think of her also saying all the time that she's eternally 12. Exactly. We have Daydream, Butterfly, then Rainbow, then Glitter, glitter and Charm (laughs) Bracelet. And then, of course, I've already mentioned this, but the Stand In Your Truth songs Mm. that became her thing from here Mm. and then on the other albums. I think part of what makes her so interesting to me is the fact that her songs, when they're about empowerment in this era, they are still, like you said, very specific and they are about overcoming adversity, but also really just being proud of that. Mm. And she's such a type A (laughs) type of person. (laughs) And it works for her. It's not like she's worked with Diane Warren. (laughs) Diane Warren is... We'll be talking about that in the next album cycle. Yeah, we'll be talking about that. But when she's doing it herself or with other collaborators, I think that's when she's usually at her best. 100%. All right. I want to zero in with you on a couple songs that feel very important to this record. Let's begin with Honey. This is the lead single. I think this is a full-throated diving into R&B and hip-hop, even more so than she had done on the earlier record. Records. Mm-hmm. This is produced explicitly by, I'd say if you were going to talk about the two most important figures in crossover hip hop of the mid 90s, you're probably talking about Mariah and you're talking about Puff Daddy. I mean, these are the, the two people that are producer in air quotes, maybe, because like, <laughs> what he actually does has been up for debate. The DJ Khaled of his time. <laughs> But yeah, and then also Q-Tip, which feels like a really interesting nod to the fact that Mariah knows her shit. ODB spoke to this as well, but Mariah isn't just a passing interested party in hip hop. Mariah is a hip hop head. Like she's sampling Mob Deep on this. I mean, like she is somebody that knows her shit. So here we have Puffy and Q-Tip and Puffy at the peak of his powers. I mean, I'm talking about I'll Be Missing You, Puffy, all of the big notorious B.I.G. songs, Mo Money, Mo Problems also comes out this year. I mean, this is peak era Puff Daddy. I know you rather see me die than see 
see me fly. I call all the shots, rip all the spots, rock all the rocks, top all the drops. I know you're thinking now we know. And you have what is essentially a very smoothed out R&B song that I think very notably is definitely the most important example thus far from Mariah's single that is not about belting. Mm -hmm. Even on Fantasy, which is a song that this song is clearly in a lineage with, on the original version of Fantasy, Mariah Carey is still fucking ripping vocals on that song. <laughs> yes. She comes out the gate. Yes, it's a mid-tempo <laughs> party starter, but she is like, when you walk by... <laughs> this is the first really important iteration of the Mariah coup the mariah sort of restrained yeah. vocal performance where she leans into being sultry as opposed to just blowing hard which i feel like is a really important element in setting up a lot of her later work Is there anything you want to say that describes Honey to you or what is important about Honey to you as a moment or even just what you like about Honey or why it feels like a critical moment in Mariah's evolution as a musical artist? Yeah, I mean, that beat is just so funky. Ugh, it's so good. I love it. It just kind of gets stuck to your insides. Yes, 100%. But then her vocals, like you said, she's cooing. It drips like Honey. She's actually emulating what Honey might sound like. And I also just always go back to, I think, about the video, of course. Oh, my God. I just rewatched it before we got on. Oh, my God. Eddie Griffin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that whole scene with the stick of gum is just ridiculous. It's insane. You don't die. You got any last request? Some gum, please? Gum? <laughs> People want ice water in hell. Baby, chew on up. Gum will kill you. Not for me, for you. But it's also like, this is our first time because of that scene and because of this whole look that she has. Right. Yes, she's still in all black in a couple of scenes. I think her bathing suit is black. She's going full Bond girl. That's the whole theme of it. And it's her being like, I'm hot and I can kick ass. And Tommy who? What? Yeah, literally. <laughs> I mean, the video almost is kind of trying to tell a story about her escaping from captors. Exactly. It's not really subtle in that way. Not at all. The whole thing essentially posits her as a Bond girl escaping villains and diving off of a mansion balcony in a bathing suit to escape them. And I think the video is crucial in the establishment of Camp Mariah, which is something that we're going to talk about a lot here. I mean, Mariah is vacillating a lot in this period between sincerity and camp. And I think that this is one of those moments where Mariah as the camp diva really comes into full focus. She is fully leaning into that and sort of owning that part of her persona as well. That video, I think, represents that. And I think another important element of Honey is I think it's a really underrated example of her pop songwriting prowess. There's three choruses on this song. Yeah. One of the things that I love about Honey, and I think about this a lot when I play it in DJ sets, is you always forget that after one chorus, there's just three other choruses coming. There's the it's just like Honey part, then the it's Honey when it washes over me section, and then there's the Honey I can't describe how good it feels inside section. There's literally three stacked choruses, as if she couldn't just get enough hooks out of her mouth. <laughs> I love that part of Honey. It's just like rolling endless choruses.
it's incredible. So yeah, so this song's obviously an incredibly important moment, I think, where Mariah kind of steps into a new guise. She is sultry, explicitly horny in a way that she's never really been before. I mean, what is the honey exactly? Dutch washing over her, you know, it can be interpreted in many ways. So I think this is a very important video and single for Mariah. Okay, now I want to talk about a couple other things. We have the two sort of ballads that come after it on the record, which are Butterfly and My All. My All obviously is a second number one hit from this record. What do you think about Mariah in ballad mode on this album? How is it similar to past ballad mode Mariah songs? She's obviously still working with her primary collaborator to this point, Walter Afaniasiev. I always don't know how to say his name properly. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you think these ballads are of a kind with the classic Mariah ballad that we had known to that part and how you might feel like they're different from the past Mariah ballads. Yeah, I mean, my all is like, this was when she was getting into the castanets and the Spanish guitar. (laughs) She kind of maybe predated the Latin explosion in a way with that. But she certainly post-dated Unbreak My Heart, which is the song that I always think of most notably when I listen to my all. You're right. How could I forget that? Okay, so yeah, she was maybe riding that wave for sure. And then it shows up later in a couple of her other albums as well. Right. I really love my all. Me too. Again, this is her not coming out the gate. I give my all. Like she starts low. I love the second version. She's like, baby, can you feel me? The way her voice resonates in that song is just so powerful. And it doesn't really sound like anything that came before it from her other albums. I think that one very much stands out. Also just the time signature and how just kind of moody it is. It's very much like a mood piece. Yes. And I think it's interesting the way that she deploys old virtuosic singing elements to her artistry here, but in new ways. Mm. The melismatic runs that she's known for here feel like expressions of horniness in a way that they used to feel like expressions of gospel god worship in earlier instances (laughs) of her songs. Or just virtuosic acrobatics. Yes. As you mentioned, this song has real sexual tension and heat to it. I mean, the song is essentially about having such an incredible sexual experience with someone that you would literally give your all to have it again, (laughs) is one interpretation of this song. It's interesting, and this is something that happens in a lot of her music during this period, which is she ends up utilizing, whether it's the runs, whether it's the melisma, whether it's the whistle tone, to express sexual desire in a way that she had never really done before. Yeah, absolutely. I love that song. I mean, as to Butterfly, though, I also love 
love Butterfly. Honestly, I love pretty much every song of this album. Yeah. I think this might be her most perfect album mm -hmm. from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. But I think that Butterfly feels the most like it could have fit in on an earlier Mariah album. For sure. I think it doesn't quite feel like a song that would have come out in 1997. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but the production of it, the drums, like the boom, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. It feels very Celine era. Mm -hmm. But again, this is her talking about a butterfly and using all of these sort of metaphors for that and also being very specific about loving someone but feeling like you have to leave them behind for the betterment of yourself. Mm. And I also just love the moment at the end of the bridge where she's just like, but you'll never be mine. Oh, shit. But I will stand and say goodbye for you'll never be mine until you know the way it feels to fly. Yes, until you know the way it feels. And then she goes, fly. And it's like <laughs> the most magical. And then the chorus comes in underneath her as if she was actually flying and they're like the wind beneath her wings. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> I love that. I just think it's so beautiful and pretty. And it does feel like a throwback, but even though it feels musically like a throwback, its themes just feel like it fits perfectly within this album. Right. It's like a manifesto for the album. And I also think it maybe speaks to an interesting piece of insight into Mariah, which is this sort of commercial instinct that she has. When I listen to Butterfly, this is part of what I hear. I hear somebody that is still feeling out how far she can push into the more experimental mm. elements of this, yeah. but still feels the intuition to make sure that she shores up the audience that she came into this record with. Like, she's not going to go make a Bjork album. <laughs> this is somebody that ultimately is a commercial creature who I think very earnestly comes by wanting mass appeal and mass success. So I think that when I hear a song like Butterfly in the context of this record, I think of somebody that probably wanted to make sure that this record had something on it to please the fans that might have struggled a little bit with something like the other two songs I definitely want to make sure that we touch on here, which are The Roof, which we've already talked about a little bit, which is essentially built Building a little bit on the long ago formula from Daydream, which is her flipping the beat of an incredibly hard kind of street New York hip hop song in Mob Deep's Shook Ones Part Two. And turning it into a story of kind of like a lusty evening with Derek Jeter, but most importantly, I think sort of illustrates her continued forays into hip hop. And I think perhaps the most important song on this record, which is the Bone Thugs and Harmony duet Breakdown, yes. which is maybe the crowning achievement, I think, of Mariah's entire career, where she busts down the wall between rapping and singing entirely and essentially sings the verses in the style of Bone Thugs' incredibly intricate rapping style. Yeah. Very staccato. The cadences are incredibly intricate and difficult, and she sort of glides and sings her way through them in a way that I think is one of the most innovative moments in pop history, probably, and maybe Mariah's signature most important innovative song that she ever came up with, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
I think Breakdown is also maybe my favorite. Yes. I remember when I got the album and listening to the CD and just hitting backward again, 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 so I could listen to the whole thing. Yes. And also I had like the booklet with the lyrics so I could learn the lyrics. Which are hard to learn. Oh my God, yes. Except now they're just permanently ingrained in my head. They will never leave. But they're so intricate. They are. There was a time when everyone was like, oh, Drake brought R&B and no. First of all, it's not just Mariah because Mariah has said she was looking toward Mary J. Blige and other contemporaries who were doing the same thing and she wanted to do that. Yes. And so we're in this period where you have Mary J. We also have Aaliyah. And if you think about the way Mariah is flowing, it's very similar to the way Aaliyah was flowing yes. while she was working with Timberland and Missy. So I think she's very much in conversation on breakdown with what's happening within R&B on that front. Even the production is stuttery in a way. Yes. And then again, she's talking about breaking up with someone and how earth shattering that feels and breaking down and crying and lying to your friends about being okay. And it's just like this is so specific Mm. and anyone who's ever had their heart broken which is probably all of us yes you can relate and so i think of that song it's so perfect if i remember correctly because i also i got the number ones album that came out after this i think in the liner notes i remember her saying that she was she could have included breakdown because she loved it so much Mm. but it wasn't a number one it barely even charted, I think. Yeah. It didn't get the same rollout or attention as the other songs on the album did. Yeah. It was released as a single and it had a music video that was very weird and doesn't really go with the song. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there was also some promotional issues because Tommy was so resentful of some of the yes. creative direction she took on this album and her fight for her independence that I think she's spoken about. I think she talked about it in the memoir that they dropped promotion on this record after the first couple of singles, I think. Yeah, a common thread that will come up later in our conversation as yeah. well when <laughs> she's course. upset with the way they are not promoting stuff. Yes. But yeah, I love Breakdown. It's so good. Any lamb will tell you it's top five, maybe top three. The way she flows over this beat, I understand the way she's looking to other people. But when I listen to this, when I listen to the way she flows on this beat, the sort of staccato jumbling of words and then the spaces and all of the ways that she sort of dresses this like a rapper while still maintaining the sort of beautiful singing voice at the same time. There's no Destiny's Child without this song. Oh my God, yes. It's beautiful. It's fascinating. To me, this is the Mariah song that I would put on the altar for all time. I don't know if it's my favorite or not, but I definitely think this song, in terms of just sheer legacy in pop music, this song goes on the altar for Mariah. It's just wonderful. It's everything to me. I just love this song. Yeah. To me, it's the song that if you want to understand who she is as an artist, that is one of the songs that you absolutely have to include. A hundred percent. So we have this record, which I think also in a commercial sense is a very vindicating win for Mariah. I mean, this is the record where she has most clearly broken from Tommy and she has continued to have great success. This album is not as successful as Daydream, which was the home of three massive number one singles and went diamond. It's hard for any album to be that successful, but we have two number ones in My All and Honey. It gets the best critical reviews of her career thus far. And as you said, I think it very effectively transitions her into the second real wave of her career as this artist that is adjacent to the hip hop community, that isn't just here to deliver vocal acrobatics in an Olympian fashion and that has something to say and ways to say it that are pretty fascinating and innovative and interesting. I guess my question is to you, how does this record and its success alter who Mariah Carey is in public imagination 
based on what we had set up going into this conversation. Does this record succeed in all the ways that probably she intended it to? I definitely think so. I think this is her still firmly in her imperial yes. can do no wrong phase. Yes. When you think about it, and she was part of the very first VH1 Divas Live. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> uh, do I? Are you kidding me? These are like the most important memories of my childhood. <laughs> yeah. So the idea that at this point she was kind of a diva and look, we can try and suss out how misogynistic that term has been. Of and course. All the loaded connotations around that. But that ceremony, which I feel like I watched so many times, where she was beside Aretha Franklin, Celine Dion, Gloria Stefan, and Shania Twain. And I think she was the youngest out of all of them. So like mm. putting her in that cohort, I don't know if it would have happened if Butterfly hadn't happened. Right. Maybe. But I do think it helps solidify her and bring her into this upper echelon of the divas and of the pop stars at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I believe that her whole Tommy thing was public, or at least people, if you were paying attention, knew that things were fraying. Yes, of course. <laughs> in that relationship, I think that that definitely helped establish her sort of independence and make her seem as though she wasn't just this puppet that could be controlled. Right. She was taking control of her her image. So yeah, I think that this was such a crucial album for really establishing yeah. that and also moving her beyond mega superstar to like icon status almost. Yes, 100%. And also solidifying her visual image, I think also a very important element of this. This is where we start seeing Mariah in the skimpy outfits, showing off her body more. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a huge image overhaul that we touched on a little bit about the Honey video, but comes into full force here in this period of her career, which is kind of how we think about Mariah now, someone who definitely enjoys her sex appeal, and that's a big part of her public persona. And that was something that we really didn't experience very often in the earlier phases of her career. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. So important to note that she also publicly divorces Tommy Mottola in 1998 in the wake of this album. She also that year drops her greatest hits package, the number ones. I want to breeze by her number ones singles. Not my personal favorites. I'll give you a chance to comment on them if you want to. One is a cover of her former mentor, Brenda Starr's I Still Believe, which is fine. <laughs> And also the most disappointing moment in her career, perhaps, which is when the two greatest divas of their generation come together to make perhaps one of the worst songs of each of their careers. <laughs> what? I don't know if I agree with that. Okay, I will give you a chance to come to bat for When You Believe, which is, of course, a duet between Mariah and Whitney Houston. Okay, is it gloopy and like... <laughs> 
Oh my God. Yes, sure. I think the only reason I go to bat for it is that moment during the bridge when they harmonize and they're like, yeah. and when you through the rain. Like, I don't know, the modulation there just like gets me. All right. It's not a song that I actually reach for. Like, if it pops up while I'm listening to it, I'm not going to turn it off. Yes. I don't know. I enjoy that song. <laughs> it's too much amazing singing. The world cannot house one song containing those two divas in one place. I think there's no structure strong enough to hold that. I don't <laughs> That's fair. That's very fair. <laughs> okay. So she divorces Tommy. She's still, though, in her deal with Sony. Yeah. And she has one album left to deliver in that deal. So that is kind of more or less what leads us to 1999's Rainbow. Now, I'm interested in how you feel about this album. So maybe first question for you is, what's happening on Rainbow as it pertains to everything that we were sort of laying out with Butterfly? How is this a continuation of Butterfly and how is it different from Butterfly in your mind? I think this album is kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unlike Butterfly or even Daydream, it kind of feels like it has one foot in the present sounds and then another foot way back in 1993. Totally. Or even really the <laughs> 80s because she has that cover of Phil Collins. Yes. Against all odds. <laughs> yes. Another trope of the Mariah album is an 80s cover. We love an 80s cover. <laughs> That's for sure. An 80s ballad, yes, yes, yes. Although one of the things I love about Butterfly is that the 80s cover was Prince. It was the beautiful ones, yes. that duet with Drew Hill, which yes. I love. I think yes. it's a really great cover. Agreed. So yeah, this album is all over the place. And yet I think I probably like it a lot more than a lot of Mariah Carey fans mm, might. There's a lot of filler. There's a lot of songs that I think don't necessarily work, yeah. including that Against All Odds. But she has Heartbreaker, yes. which again is another 80s sampling. This time she's sampling Stacey. Lattisaw's Attack of the Name game. Yes. It is kind of like Fantasy 2.0. <laughs> it really, it's very much Fantasy 2.0. It is. But no knocks. You could remake a lot worse than Fantasy, let's be honest. And look, I love Heartbreaker. Me too. I absolutely love it. I've done it at karaoke a few times. Oh, it's so good. Also, an iconic Jay-Z verse. One of his best guest feature verses ever. Yes, chasing skios away. Yeah. I still don't know what a skio is. She want a pillow fight in the middle of the night? Come on. <laughs> she want shop with Jay, play box with Jay. She want a pillow fight in the middle of the night. She want to drive my bands with five of her friends. She want to creep past the blocks, spying again. She want to roll with Jay, chase skios away. She want to... Also, very important to note, I think, for anybody that didn't live through this period, this was a very important moment where Mariah kind of 
mainstreamed Jay-Z onto the top of the charts. Jay-Z had never had a top 10 single prior to appearing on Heartbreaker. So this was also a moment where Mariah kind of king made Jay-Z's pop career. Of course, he was one of the biggest rappers in the world. I don't want to underplay. It wasn't like she picked him out of obscurity, but it was a big moment for him. But but like white people, white white people knew. I didn't want to say it, but yeah, that's that's what I meant. I mean, that's what we mean. That's what we really mean. Yeah. I love this song too. As craven as it is, as formulaic as it is to her previous work, it's a joy bomb. Just an absolute fucking joy bomb. Love this song. Also, this is the one where she says incessantly, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I have that written in my notes, but I just keep on coming back incessantly in all capital letters as a classic Mariahism. (laughs) Another word I learned (laughs) because of Mariah Carey. It's a shame to me, so euphoric and weak. Persuade (laughs) me to relinquish my love to you. <laughs> oh, man, we could go on and on. Yeah. I remember the rollout to this being pretty big, actually. Yes. Mm-hmm. I remember there being an MTV special yes. for this. And she like performed Heartbreaker and maybe a couple of other songs. And it was like a big thing. And then I also remember the making the video for Heartbreaker. Yes. Featured Jerry O'Connell, Stand By Me, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Actually, at his hottest. Yeah. yeah. At peak hotness. Mm-hmm. Her leaning even deeper into the camp with the two versions of Mariah, the dark haired version and the light haired version. Didn't the dark haired have a name what was her name yes i can't remember it wasn't elvira but i feel like it was something like elvira (laughs) (laughs) it was something like that wait what was her name it was really funny Bianca Storm. Oh, Bianca. Okay. <laughs> and there's like the little dog. Yes. She's got the little Paris Hilton. Yes. I don't even know if Paris Hilton was doing that yet. But... No. <laughs> no, Mariah did it first. Yeah. It definitely <laughs> felt like even though she was in this battle, they were putting their chips in on this album. But it is kind of all over the place. And you've got a lot more sort of droopy ballads that Thank God I Found You oh. with 98 Degrees and Joe. Oh, her worst number one question mark by far her worst number one god this song is awful Yeah, but I guess that was also the product of its time because first of all, you have, again, 98 Degrees. And so it was like, this is the song that would be on a boy band album at that period. Uh It was a wild time. But yeah, you have that. You have the remix of Heartbreak, which is also great. Fantastic. When you have Debrat. That samples Ain't No Fun If The Homies Can't Have None by Snoop Dogg. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this album. Okay. (laughs) So I'd say this is probably my least favorite of the albums we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. You laid out some of the reasons why. From what I understand, it was recorded quickly. Like three months, I think. And it was recorded resentfully is the feeling that I have from it. She needed to get out of her deal. She had to make this album. It was the album, I think, to this point, she seemed to be essentially admitting she put the least amount of effort into. And I think you feel that. And there's an inessential feeling to a lot of these songs to me. They do feel perfunctory. I feel like every Mariah album to this point had pushed the narrative forward in a meaningful way, and particularly the preceding two had just been so monumental monumentally transformative to who Mariah was and as vessels for her artistry. And to me, this is one of the first moments where I think we get a peek into a moment where there's friction behind the scenes that is hurting the work in some ways. Now, there are interesting elements to this that I want to point out. One is you talked about the rainbows, the butterflies, all this stuff. There's two things that come into form related to that. One is the arrested development vibe of Mariah, which is this feeling of 
Here is a woman that essentially, I think, felt like she had her 20s robbed from her. People often refer to your early and mid-20s as a second adolescence. This is where you kind of come into yourself as an adult, as a sexual being. And she was, in her own words, imprisoned during that period by her husband. And I have this sense in this period of her career, this sort of shifts with emancipation. But these run of albums give me the impression of somebody that feels kind of betwixt and between being an adult woman and being a little girl. And I think that that can create some really fun effervescent moments like a heartbreaker. I mean, she sings frivolous, fun, effervescent, young sounding pop anthems well, and it's like one of her calling cards. But then there's a little bit of like a dissonance there for me. And then the camp factor sort of takes over here in a way that I find is heavy handed. I think Mariah's at her best when she's halfway between camp and sincerity. Albums like Emancipation, albums like Butterfly handle that very well, where you get the elements of self-referential humor, the sense of fun, the sense of playfulness, the sense of playing with the diva persona, all of that stuff. But you also get lots of sincerity and emotion and moving elements to a lot of the records. And I think that this album feels heavy on the camp, all the way down to the cover of her in the rainbow little outfit with the rainbows. I mean, it's an iconic cover. I love it, but like... It's iconic. It also feels very... I don't know if she's talked about this specifically, but I've seen queer fans of her say like this felt like the first time she was really speaking directly to them. Mm, Interesting. Because of the rainbow, obviously, but also just the whole look of her on the cover just feels kind of campy, but explicitly so, yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Two other things I want to point out about this. One is I feel like there's a way in which her dalliances into hip hop start to feel here a little bit like it's Mariah doing people doing Mariah. Mm. You have a song like Ex-Girlfriend, which sort of feels like Mariah doing a Destiny's Child song in the sense that Destiny's Child is doing breakdown. It's like the circle gets completed, but it feels like she's behind the curve in some ways. I was gonna say that song feels very of its moment in a not great way. Yes. Because Dark Child, of course, was very prominent at this point. Yeah. And it also just has that chintzy sound that we heard over all those songs at that moment. The harpsichord noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also it just made me think of Pink in her Am I Black, Am I oh, Not phase. Sure. Black Pink. <laughs> Black Pink, as we say. Black Pink. <laughs> yeah. No, and I mean that song is literally written by Candy Burris and Kevin Briggs, who of yeah. course famously produced Bugaboo and No Scrubs. So it sounds like that. And we have one of her schmaltziest ballads in the song with Diane Warren, Mariah's theme. They can't take that away from me. Yes. I have a soft spot for the early schmaltzy Mariah ballads, but we have iconic schmaltzy Mariah ballads and we don't need more of them. And that's how I yeah. feel with Can't Take That Away. Yes, they can try, but they can't take that away from me. They can't. The good things are that I feel she leans further in, as I was talking about on Butterfly a little bit, to utilizing the dexterity and breadth of her vocal talent to serve new ends. And one of my favorite moments on this record is the song Bliss, which is a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis song. So you can hear a lot of all for you, period, Janet 
production flourishes throughout Jimmy and Terry's work on this record. But what I love about this song is that essentially she is utilizing the whistle tone to express an orgasm. Yeah. It's almost like love to love you, baby meets anytime, any place or mini Ripperton's loving you is easy because you're beautiful. It's campy, but it's also delightful. Just listening to her utilize that whistle tone to express sexual ecstasy. That's one of the elements of this album that I enjoy the most is watching her play with her voice in these kind of new forums. I think Bliss might be my favorite song on this album. Yes, I think so too. If Breakdown was the song on Butterfly that I kept rewinding back and forth, this was the song that I kept rewinding back and forth over and over and over again. The way they layer her vocals and just kind of luxuriate in mm-hmm. this song, because it's I think it's over five minutes long. Yes. And a lot of it is just her just sighing and making noises. And yes. it's really hot. It's a hot song. It is. <laughs> it's a little like, whoa. When you're over, you're like, okay. I know. Does it come after They Can't Take That Away From Me? I think it does. Yes, that's the thing. This album whips you around (laughs) mad. It's like you get Heartbreaker, then you get Can't Take That Away, and then you get Bliss. Yeah, it's like, I guess. Okay, sure. (laughs) (laughs) My only other contender for top song on this record is Cry Baby. I really enjoy Cry Baby. I'm so glad you said that. That's the hip-hop foray on this record that works the best for me. Yes, with her lyricism. I love how she's like, Super Bailey Scream by the stereo. <laughs> Bailey Scream, sure. Yeah, it's product placement, but I can see it. I can see the Bailey Scream. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Me too. 100%. Baby, don't Super Bailey Scream by the stereo. Trying to find relief on the radio. So I guess where I net out on this album is I like almost every Mariah album. So like I'm an easy sell on most Mariah music, but I think this record was made fast. It's a label obligation and it has some good moments on it. But I think overall it feels like a letdown after Butterfly. I mean, yeah. to have achieved that level of sort of artistic breakthrough and then to kind of come to this, it definitely felt just chronologically listening to all the records to prepare for making these episodes. It was a bit of a letdown feeling to me. This feels diffuse and less focused yeah. on an artistic level, on a thematic level, on a textural level. It just doesn't totally click for me, even though I love a lot of the songs, I guess is my overarching feeling. So this is Mariah's final record on her Sony deal. It sells pretty much exactly the same numbers as Butterfly did. It has two number one hits in Heartbreaker and Thank God I Found You for whatever <laughs> yeah. reason, which maybe says more about how big Mariah is than anything about that song. Like, Imperial phase, <laughs> I'm telling you. Like, yeah. 100%. <laughs> so now we need to take a step back, I think. Mariah has been in public consciousness at this point for a decade. She is one of maybe the top three defining pop stars of the 90s, if not the defining pop star of the 90s, I think it is arguable to say. She's gone through numerous iterations. She has, I think at this point, she's already racked up probably 13 or 14 number one singles. She is the biggest star or one of the biggest stars on the planet Earth. Yeah. Can you lay out to us a little bit 
how Mariah's Sony deal comes to an end and the sort of genesis of both the Virgin $100 million deal and then, of course, her idea of what she's going to do first on that new deal. Yeah. So, I mean, Tommy doesn't want to let her go. And she's like, I'm not happy here. And clearly you're not going to help me reach my fullest potential. So in her book, she talks about flying to Japan to meet with the Sony president at the time because she was like, I can't talk to Tommy and I can't talk to anyone else. And she's like, I snuck away because she's like, Tommy was also he had eyes on her in every way possible. And so she was somehow able to sneak away and go and just be in a room one on one with the Sony president. And they hammer out a deal where it'll be four albums over five years. And those albums were number ones, Rainbow, this has already happened, and Greatest Hits and the remixes. And so we are talking about how Rainbow was kind of rushed. Yes. Comes out in 99. At the end of the decade, Billboard crowns her the artist of the decade, of course. The numbers don't lie. Maybe Garth Brooks came close. I don't know. She's in, I feel like every album is a transition, but she's in this period now where she is like, I did all these things. I became the biggest pop star and most consistent pop star of the last decade. In fact, I think she was number one or like on the charts for more than half of a decade, Mm -hmm. which is just crazy to think about. It's insane. Yeah. As you said, when it comes to Mariah Carey, the numbers just don't fucking lie. Yeah. We can debate XYZ about her artistry, whatever it is, but the numbers just are there. I mean, this woman sold so many albums and had so many hit songs. It's like kind of boggles the mind. I mean, really only the Beatles are kind of ahead of her at this point. So anyway, go on. Right. So I think a lot of people were willing to say, yes, you were the biggest star of the decade. But and I think she felt this, too. I don't know how many people were like, oh, you can keep this going because mm. <laughs> this isn't normal. Right. You don't usually see a pop star of that magnitude who's able to maintain that. I mean, the Beatles only lasted a few years. Right. For various reasons. MJ eventually had to be knocked down from his bag. Sure. I mean, the only person I can think of who really kind of had a resurgence in a way was Janet Jackson. Yeah. Pre Justin and the Super Bowl. Right. And Madonna. I think probably is... Oh, and Madonna, of course. In terms of just sheer legs and longevity, yeah, is probably also in this conversation. For sure. But I think a lot of people thought she was down for the count. And then you have Glitter. (laughs) Do we want to move to Glitter or is it too soon? (laughs) This is a moment we were going to have to get to at some point. So we're going to get here. (laughs) The last thing I want to say before we discuss Glitter. So as Aisha mentioned, she signs this $100 million deal. And her dream here, her idea behind launching this new era of her career, it's a new millennium, is to do so with a film that she stars in and creates a soundtrack for it. We're going to get into all of that in one second. The thing I just want to bring up is something that I think many of the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with me talking about, which is pop star shelf life is short. Even big stars can seem humongous and invincible in one moment. And then all of a sudden the page just turns and that's kind of it. And it's only the greatest, greatest stars. And as we all know, spoiler alert, Mariah qualifies in this category because as we know, five years down the road from the period we're about to talk about, she launches probably one of the most significant comebacks in the history of the format. But the truth of the matter is, the audience will love this because this is a hobby horse of mine. Look at Katy Perry. So many people have this type of career. They seem absolutely invincible for five years, six years, and then it's just like something shifts, new generation comes in, pop is fickle, it's ageist, and especially when it comes to women, it is absolutely brutal in terms of how quickly it's willing to dispose of female pop stars. So I just want to talk about Glitter as we're about to talk about, which is obviously like one of the canonical flops in pop history, (laughs) with the knowledge that some of this probably had to do with what Glitter was and how it was marketed and some of the ways perhaps that the narrative 
swarmed around Mariah's behavior, and some of it might have just had to do with the fact that Mariah had been really big for 10 years, and at some point, something was bound to falter. Yeah. And I just think that that's an important thing to lay out here, because I think there's so much narrative around Glitter on both sides of it, that Glitter's underrated, or that Glitter is the worst thing that ever happened, or whatever it is. But I think at the end of the day, it's just important to underscore that also, Butterfly and Rainbow were successful albums, no doubt about it. They were definitely like hugely monumental in terms of the evolution of her artistry. They had hits, but they were not successful on the level of Daydream and of her debut album. I mean, they were not selling 10 million records. They were selling more like 4 million records, which is a great day for most people. But I'm just taking a macro view and looking at trend lines here to help us understand the era that we're about to enter. So Glitter, tell me about Mariah's conception of this movie and soundtrack. (laughs) And then maybe before we talk about the music, can you tell me what Glitter the film is about and like? Uh, Can I? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) okay so i've watched glitter maybe twice Mm -hmm. in my life it's not an easy watch the thing about it stephanie zaharik who at the time was reviewing it for salon she said and i'll quote it stops just short of being deliciously bad enough to qualify as a camp classic and i think that's absolutely accurate agree it's not great but it's also just not terrible terrible. it's just mid it's mid (laughs) and and that's the worst thing this kind of movie could be a hundred percent great so basically this film apparently Mariah first had the idea for this or was tinkering with this idea back in the butterfly era, actually, right. around 1997. And it's a very thinly veiled pseudo biography of her life. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of the elements of her life, but she doesn't play herself exactly. She's a club dancer named Billy Frank. I'm assuming we're going for Billy Holiday and Frank Sinatra here, I guess, <laughs> who grew up in an orphanage after her mother, who was played by Valerie Pettiford, accidentally burned down the house. She was a nightclub singer and she had, I guess, drug issues. I don't know if the movie ever actually says what her issues are. They just kind of signal to it. Another one of its problems is so much of it is so just vague. But anyway, she's like a club dancer. She's got her best friends, one of whom is played by DeBrat. And she eventually becomes a backup singer for <laughs> I forgot Padma Lashmi <laughs> was in this movie for like this pop star who can't sing. <laughs> And so in a very singing in the rain moment, <laughs> Terrence Howard, who is her record producer, says, turn Billy up and we're not going to tell Padma Lakshmi's character that <laughs> she's actually singing for her. <laughs> it's like, OK. <laughs> All right, Lena Lamont. Hey, Billy. Hey, can you repeat that verse that Silk just did? Yeah, just for the backup. OK. Turn Silk way down, bring Billy all the way up. And then eventually she links up with Dice, who's played by Max Beasley, who's like this club DJ. And he's like, I'm going to manage you. And also I'm going to fall in love with you. He buys Billy's contract, I think, with Terrence Howard for like $100,000. And he owes Terrence Howard's character that money, but doesn't tell Billy. And so he's like managing her. And then eventually Terrence Howard's like, where's my money, yo? Where's my money, man? Uh <laughs> And shoots him. And then throughout all of this, Billy becomes a really huge star. At the end, she sings Never Too Far. And it's also kind of like a star is born. It's like she arose and he died and it's sad. (laughs) Boo-hoo. I don't know if that was the best. What an iconic, what an iconic (laughs) summary. That was perfect. 
I could have asked for anything better than that. And also, it's so true. It's not campy and fun enough to be delightfully stupid. It's kind of just boring. Let's talk a little bit about the accompanying soundtrack, which has gone through a lot of reassessment in recent years. I'll give you the brief overview, and then we can talk about how we feel about this. The record is positioned as an 80s homage, which is really interesting. I don't know if Mariah's ever really attempted to this point to sort of have basically a concept record. We can talk about whether she actually succeeds at creating a concept album, but that is kind of the idea here. The film takes place in that period, and the idea here is essentially she's going to recreate the music of the 80s, which as we've mentioned in earlier parts of our discussion, Mariah really loves the music of the 80s. She covers it a lot. Even when she's making contemporary sounding hip-hop adjacent pop music, she's often sampling stuff from the 80s. She has a really deep crate digging knowledge of great 80s hits or even forgotten 80s songs. I mean, she's really a knowledgeable wellspring on the period. She grew up loving the pop music of this period and it shows. So that's kind of the concept here. In practice, this record is very much all over the place in a similar way to Rainbow, although different to me. You definitely have like the meat on the bones of there are the 80s homages. Obviously, the lead single, Lover Boy, which we are going to return to for narrative reasons in a moment, samples Cameo's Candy, which is an 80s sample, but I think ultimately comes out in the wash sounding like it's in the lineage of Heartbreaker and Fantasy and Honey. It's very much a contemporary hip-hop adjacent pop disco song of sorts. And then you have the meat of the 80s homage, which is a note-for-note cover of Shirelle's 1984 song, Didn't Mean to Turn You On, with the same production from the original. Yeah, I actually kind of love that song, secretly. Love that, of course. I mean, the original's great, and it's great here. Yes. You have another cover of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life by In Deep that is slightly recreated and also gets swallowed up by a plethora of rap features, which is another issue that kind of comes across a lot in this record. And then you have a lot of standard issue Mariah musical choices of this period, which are the requisite kind of late 90s R&B pop hip-hop crossover moments in like If We, which essentially sounds like could have been on Rainbow, for instance. You have, of course, the requisite ballads, but these ballads are maybe two of her best of this time period, in my opinion, Lead the Way and Never Too Far. Yeah. I think the shining moments on this record. But yeah, 
I don't know. What do you make of this soundtrack? It was so derided at the time. Yeah. And now it's sort of seen as this underrated gem. Where do you net out on that? Well, I do think it's notable that when that Justice for Glitter campaign was happening, no one was talking about the movie. They were just talking about the soundtrack. Right. Like... Yeah. No, I think we can categorically decide that the movie does not deserve justice. The movie <laughs> was given its due. Yeah. In this case, I like this album. Mm-hmm. It is all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely some skips. But I do think that what I like about it is kind of how messy that can feel sometimes, mm. especially the song she does with Rick. James yeah. all my life. Yes. It just feels snapped out of 1984. Absolutely. It doesn't even really sound like it's trying to be like the recreation of it. It's trying to be that song. Yes. And I think it just really works. It's funky. It feels like Rick James. And it was actually written in the 80s, I believe, for the Mary Jane Girls. Oh, okay. It was a Lucy that never got recorded. Yeah. That's right. I was going to say, like, I could see the Mary Jane Girls or even Tina Marie singing this. Oh, yes. Uh, Tina Marie seems like an important influence on this record, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So I think it works. Do I think that it deserves justice, though? That's <laughs> the question. Um, yeah, I definitely think it feels like it kind of became collateral yes. for all the other stuff that was happening. And actually, it's funny because when you look at the reviews of the movies, a lot of them will point out that the best parts were the musical parts. Yeah, for sure. And like, Mariah should stick to singing. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, that's not surprising. But also, there's something there. I think even if there are moments that I don't love about this album, I do think that, like you said, it's a concept album in a way which we haven't seen before. Yeah. And I think this is like a nice little bridge to Charm Bracelet and then Emancipation, which have their own sort of borrowing from the 80s Mm. sounds. So yeah, I like Glitter overall. Yeah. I wouldn't like fall on the sword for it, but I do enjoy it. I like it better than Rainbow. I'll put it that way. There's a higher hit rate for me than on Rainbow. And as I mentioned, I really like the ballads, which is strange for me because this is a period where I'm very, very short fuse on the sort of schlocky Mariah ballad thing. But I think Lead the Way, which I think must be a leftover from the 90s because she had stopped working with Walter by this point and they had had a falling out, but he's credited as a songwriter here. So that makes me believe that this must have been written earlier in her career. But this is like hero, but better to me. It's the same sort of schlock level, but I like I'm here for it. And then Never Too Far, honestly, should Mariah Carey write a musical? Like an actual Broadway musical. When I listen to Never Too Far, I hear someone standing on stage on a Broadway stage and belting out. And it made me wonder, should Mariah write an original Broadway musical? Because like, that's what that song gives me. All right, so that's the music on Glitter, and that's the film Glitter. Now let's get to the most important part of this era of Mariah's career, the attendant narrative that surrounds her and all of the messiness therein. Can you just give us, in broad strokes overview, what the rollout of this album is like? Yeah, so she actually like lays most of the blame <laughs> on Tommy. Yes. No surprise. Yeah. So Loverboy, I guess this is where we should talk about the J-Lo of it all. <laughs> yes. So Loverboy, as we know, samples Cameo, but originally it was supposed to sample a different song, Yellow Magic Orchestra's Firecracker. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess she played Loverboy with the firecracker sample for the executives. Someone found out and she thinks Tommy was behind it and they rushed to have Tommy's new interest, J-Lo, record I'm Real, not the Ja Rule remix that we all Mm. know and maybe love. (laughs) I love it. I do too, but you know. Some don't. Yeah, some don't. (laughs) But yeah, the original that has no resemblance to the more popular remix. And so they took it and released it before Loverboy could come out. And Mariah was like, well, fuck, I can't do this song now. Mm -hmm. And so she gets the cameo sample. That's part of it. And then I guess also because Ja Rule is on Glitter. And I think (laughs) the other stitch to this is that knowing that Ja Rule was on that album, they also grabbed him to be on the remix for I'm Real. Yeah, I think it should be noted that everything that J-Lo becomes famous for in this period, this entire sort of rapper singer duet motif is something that she lifted from Mariah. Exactly. Obviously, Mary J had done it before, but that style was something that is signature to Mariah's mid-90s work. And so not only is J-Lo directly stealing an idea from her, but she's also like kind of stealing an entire career motif from Mariah by doing this. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the behind the scenes rollout issue. And then there was the in front of the scenes rollout issue. Yes, right. Where while promoting this, I think it was the summer before the movie dropped because it was supposed to drop right around 9-11. Yes. Another issue that comes up (laughs) the week after 9-11. So she shows up on TRL infamously. Mm -hmm. I guess it was surprise. Carson Daly said he didn't know or pretended he didn't know, although Mariah's book, she says, he had to have known. Like, I couldn't just walk up there and like... (laughs) She's like, someone in his team knew. If you're just joining us, Mariah Carey just walked in wearing a t-shirt pushing an ice cream bin. Hi, Carson. What are you doing here? Hi. So she shows up in the middle of an episode of TRL. It's Total Request Live. It is actually live. And she's like got an ice cream thing. What do you call those things? Like an ice cream cart. Yeah. Yeah, an ice cream cart. And she's just like, hey, guys, I'm here. Carson is caught off guard, supposedly. And she's just kind of acting a little weird in a way that people hadn't necessarily seen her act before. Wait, try to avoid shots because these shorts are really short. Yeah, just don't move. Talk about the ice cream. But we got to discuss this. Okay. Things look good from here. I won't move. But they see these ain't my these are just some folks on the nice street. Well, we like this. Mariah Carey's um, okay. lost her mind. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on here. I was going commercial break wait, uh, Carson, out of the other wait, wait. video, and it's I hear her singing. You brought ice cream. Look at the ice cream truck. I bought, I bought everybody presents. Hold All right, on. Mariah, here. She seems kind of off. She's hinting at some issues. I rewatch it, and she like talks about her mother, and she's like, "I hope my mom watches. My mom mm-hmm. like loves you. She wrote you a letter." And it's a little all over the place. So I'll say that it's loopy. Yes. It's loopy. It's loopy. But then, even though we didn't have the social media that we had now, the tabloids run with this, and she becomes branded as this crazy. Very much when you look back on it, this is her shaving her head moment. This is before Britney. There was Mariah. Mm-hmm. All of this does not help with the rollout of the film. 
And then she checks herself into a hospital for exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And then the movie comes out, critics pan it. And also it comes out right after 9-11. And I think it opens at like number 11. It's a huge flop. And I think she saw this as sort of her attempt because for years she had wanted to try acting. But Tommy, she says, wouldn't let her and Mm -hmm. was like very much like, no, you sing. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. And I think she saw this as her stepping stone to a new part of her career. Mm. I think she wanted to be like a Barbara Streisand type where she could go in and out. And the way this movie comes out, and of course, she's the star of it. No one else in this movie is nearly as big of a star as she is. So all of the blame gets thrown at her feet. And it basically derails her commitment to Virgin. And like a few months later, they buy her out and they're just like, we'll give you money. Just go away. Mm. (laughs) It's funny because like, I don't know how you feel about it, but like in hindsight, I don't think this movie is as bad Mm. as people make it out to be. Like when I watch Purple Rain, I'm like, this is not a good movie. Agreed. The music is great. I recently had to do that for our Prince episodes <laughs> and it was highly unenjoyable. It's not a good movie. I mean, it has some moments. It's similar in the sense that the musical moments are by far the best moments, but the rest of it, I mean, right. whatever. That's a whole other conversation. The misogyny, it was a hard watch for me. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say because we're in this reckoning of looking back on things that have happened to our female pop stars and only doing this after the fact. But I don't think that all the blowback was warranted. <laughs> People just wanted to pick at her. Yeah, it's like that wanting to tear down your idol kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. You know, one thing that was interesting to me going back and reading the reviews from the period of Rainbow and then of this was the way that she was spoken about. And I know we spoke earlier in the conversation about how I think black audiences kind of understood her and took her genius more seriously. But I mean, the critical establishment and the way that they spoke about her her image and music was truly disturbing. This is true of many pop stars in this time period. Obviously, the critical establishment, as I'm talking about right now, was largely like old white raucous men at this point but like everyone is essentially taking incredibly sort of derisive shots at the way she looks about her sexual presentation about her dalliances with hip-hop framing them as craven and i do feel like there was this sort of smelling of blood in the water or something and i think that there was still in spite of her pivots in the mid part of that decade i think there was still this image floating around of mariah in the pre-poptimism sense as kind of the representation of everything that was bad about about commercial music. I think that there was this feeling of her as this indelicate delivery system for schlock and that pop music in general really doesn't have value and she's the most craven outra example of why this is not real music. And I think that she was able to skate past it with sheer commercial gargantuanness, blockbusterness. But I think that the minute there was chum in the water, everyone was waiting to pounce. Yeah. But that still doesn't explain the totality of the level of this flop to me. I mean, that's the thing that I still try to get my head around. It's like, okay, so critics had been deriding Mariah Carey for her entire fucking career. Who gave a shit? It certainly didn't affect her commercial fortunes for most of that time period. And I guess the narrative could have had an effect, but we look at fandoms today and it's like nothing that can happen in the narrative can affect their devotion. Taylor Swift could walk out into the middle of the fucking street and shoot someone in the head and the Swifties would go buy her next record. That's always been the mystifying part of the glitter thing to me is how did she go from being the most popular person on 
earth to being this level flop seemingly overnight. And I pointed out that there were some trend lines, but the drop off is extreme. And that's always been hard for me to wrap my yeah, head. Yeah, I do think 9-11 played a huge part. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I don't know how many people were trying to go to the movies. Yeah, but what about the album? And Jay-Z's The Blueprint also came out on 9-11 and was a humongous success for him. Well, I think for the album, and I think she says this in her book, and I kind of agree with this assessment, even though it's very much patting herself on the back. But like, <laughs> you know, this was the early 2000s. I don't necessarily think people were ready for 80s nostalgia mm. yet. If this had come out maybe five or six years later, honestly, if it had come out a decade ago, I think people would have eaten it up because that was when we were kind of in the like, who we love the 80s mode. Right. Sonically, though, that wasn't the era. We've already said this, but this doesn't really sound like anything else that was happening at the time. Yeah. And I think it's notable that there was a pop generational page turning. This is the main thing that I chalk up the glitter thing to beyond any of the other stuff, beyond the public meltdown, beyond the reception to glitter, beyond even 9-11, is the fact that there is a new generation of pop stars, Britney, Christina, Brandy, a whole group of them and sync Backstreet Boys yeah. that have emerged. They're a very specific micro generation of pop. They're all extraordinarily young. That is a feature of this generation. They are marketed for their youth. They are marketed as a teen pop boom. That is the whole thing. And Mariah at the ripe old age of 29 or 30, I think might have seemed just like all of a sudden she's kind of yesterday's news a little yeah. bit. You know, I also wonder if that arrested development element of her persona where it's like she's halfway between woman and stuck in an endless adolescence started to feel funky to younger people that just wanted to stand an actual child. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you stand someone that was actually their age. Yeah. And I wonder if that change of the guard is maybe the most important element in why Glitter didn't do well and why the reinvention with Emancipation had to sort of reconfigure her once again in a totally new way, I think. I chalk up the lack of success for Glitter mostly on things that were outside of Mariah's control. And we can talk about 9-11 as part of that too, but I think it was largely just the churning nature of popular culture. Yeah, even to that point, when you think about where R&B and hip hop were at that moment, you had people like Sierra, Ashanti, right. less belty, more dancery type pop stars who were coming to the forefront. And topping the charts and all of that. And I'm sorry, but J-Lo, yeah. it was a very different time. Singing was less important. It really was. <laughs> Whitney had tapped out by then, more or less. True. And Celine was just, she was in her kind of legacy phase, so. I mean, all of the pop stars from that period were about to go into a slump moment. It's actually a really interesting moment where Celine, Whitney, Mariah, Madonna has a big flop with American Life a couple of years after this record comes out. Right. Michael Jackson kind of has his real first super flop with Invincible. Janet is about to have her Super Bowl moment. And I think the Janet Super Bowl moment pertains to this as well, because half of that was the Super Bowl and half of that was the fact that Janet was at that point a woman in her early 40s. And I think the Super Bowl definitely had a negative impact on Janet's career. But I'm sure Janet would have also been entering a period of commercial decline in this moment as well. So some of it is cyclical and out of these people's control. And it's a sad facet of our youth obsessed pop culture. But I ultimately, with the power of retrospect, that is the main facets of why this record, I think, flopped. The other things didn't help, but that's my main assessment of it. So, all right, we have the Glitter era. It's an unmitigated disaster commercially for Mariah, as we've laid out. It sort of seems to me that the narrative surrounding her, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's over. I mean, is that kind of your perception of it? Oh, definitely. She had her time and now make way for the newbies. 100%. As we said, Virgin buys her out of her 
historic $100 million deal. So she then goes on the next year to sign a new deal with Island Def Jam. And she very quickly follows up Glitter with the last record we're going to be discussing today, which is 2002's Charm Bracelet. Now, this is obviously supposed to be a corrective. It's supposed to be a erasure of the Glitter era and sort of a reset. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about what's happening on Charm Bracelet? What do you make of this record? And how is this record attempting to solve the problems that Glitter had presented? I think I was actually part of that cohort that we were just talking about of the generational baton being passed because this is the first album that I did not buy. Mm, interesting. This is about when I tapped out on Mariah for the first and last time. Mm. And I can't tell you why exactly, but I do think Charm Bracelet just didn't hit for me. Right. And also, as she has said, she also felt that they also did not promote this very well. But yeah. when I look at this album, I came to it later in life when I was just like, I need to revisit this and see if I actually do like it. I don't love it, mm -mm. but I think that there are definite trends that are continuing here and that definitely lay very explicit foundation for Emancipation of Mimi mm. in terms of how steeped in R&B it is, mm -hmm. it kind of mirrors Butterfly in that way in that it has a ton of R&B tracks. It includes some rappers, but it's not nearly as heavy on that as Glitter is. Mm. I think there's some parts of it that are very dripping with the of-the-moment R&B. I think of the song she does with Jay-Z and Freeway, oh, yeah. You Got Me, which feels <laughs> okay. like, I can see it's 2003. All the Black guys I know are wearing oversized white t-shirts and do-rags. <laughs> the girls are wearing low-ride jeans. So you have that, but then you also still have the sort of 70s throwback, which I think is my favorite song on this album, Yours. Mm. It reminds me of Bliss in a way. Yeah. She's singing in her falsetto. I think there's wind chimes. Yes. It's just very lush. Kalefa Sene described it as a sigh. <laughs> it is. It's a very beautiful sigh. I love yours. I think that's great. And she's kind of described it as her cocoon mm. when she was writing it. And I can sense that. You also have some more Standing in My Truth songs, like My Saving Grace, which I think is really pretty. I also do enjoy Bringing on the Heartbreak. Mm. I think it's one of those songs that I think a lot of people, if they mention Charm Bracelet, that's the one they gravitate towards. Yeah. And I get it. It feels like a ballad that could both fit a little bit earlier in her career, but also feels at home in this album. Yeah. It, you know, this is obviously a cover of a Def Leppard song. When I was listening to it this time, I was like, the way the way that Mariah attacks covers of 80s songs is the entire genesis of American Idol. <laughs> when I hear Mariah interpret an 80s song, I'm like, every single person that has done American Idol is doing what Mariah does when she covers 80s songs, essentially. This is very true.
for better and mostly for worse. <laughs> and mostly worse, yeah. But I do, of those, I think this is way better than her I Want to Know What Love Is cover. Oh, God. So yeah, Charm Bracelet is, I feel as though we don't get Emancipation without it. Mm. And for that, I'm grateful. But it's not an album that I return to very often as a whole. I will cherry pick some songs. Yeah, I think that's a very, very accurate assessment. I'm with you. This was a moment where I also felt tapped out of Mariah. And I definitely remember feeling like this attempt at a comeback had a smacking of desperation. I remember her coming on TRL to debut the single Through the Rain and even the way that Through the Rain is so literally addressing the fact that she's coming out of this funky period and she's going to like persevere. It just felt like she was trying to sell us the idea that she had overcome this, but the music didn't deliver on that. Yeah. And I think that one of the fascinating elements of what I think was the approach to this record and an unsuccessful approach, or at least in a commercial sense, was business as usual. I mean, it essentially feels like another Mariah album from this period. Are there certain things that point forward? Yes, and I want to note those things in a second. But I felt like the overarching feeling I get from this record is it's looking backwards. You have songs like Through the Rain that are obviously trying to reboot her career by going back to the early 90s kind of schlocky ballad Mariah, which by 2002 I just have absolutely no use for. And then you have a series of songs that feel very much in the sort of mid-tempo R&B and hip-hop, rapper feature. I mean, of course, you have the second single, Boy, I Need You, which is a pretty direct lift of Cameron's Boy. Of course, I like these kind of Mariah songs, but it definitely does not feel like the narrative is being pushed forward. This could easily have been on Rainbow. There's a lot of that here, a lot of those types of songs here. And then I just think that there's something ultimately perfunctory and featherweight about this album, and that was not what she needed to do. She needed a hard reset. She needed a hard pivot. She needed a Mm reimagining. And I think this album attempted to sort of say to the world, imagine glitter never happened. That's what this album reminds me of, and I don't think that that was an effective strategic approach because for whatever reasons fair and unfair glitter was an unmitigated disaster that ended one of the most epic runs in pop history in a pretty seemingly final fashion she needed a big swing a big pivot a big reimagining and this record feels lightweight and business as usual in a way that i think was its downfall at the end of the day i love that you describe it that way because when i think of this album and the few times that i've listened to it from beginning to end it just kind of skates over you yes it's pleasant pleasant but whatever Yeah, I can do work to it and not find myself suddenly singing the lyrics or humming the tune. And you could argue that Butterfly, in a way, kind of stays in a vibe. Like, it never really gets too up-tempo outside of Honey. But the melodies are there. The production is there. All these things are working to make that album stand out in a way that this one just feels, like you said, perfunctory. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's ever made a terrible album from beginning to end. Because, again, I can pick out at least one to two songs off of every album. 
album where I'm just like, okay, this is on repeat. Music Box is the closest she came, but sure. That's my only one. I will agree with you on Music Box. But again, it's like Dream Lover. That's pretty much it. Exactly. And that's the other thing about this record is it doesn't have the titanium singles. Yeah. Through the Rain and Boy I Need You are not stacking up to like the titanium Mariah single. So you can have as nice an album as you want here, but it's like Mariah albums, especially in this period, up and through, I'd say, equals MC squared and maybe even through memoirs. You got to have at least one sort of Titanic single on there. And this record just does not have those for me. Yeah. So I understand why we see this huge pivot, which you'll talk about in the next episode. Yeah. But we go from Charm Bracelet to very long and complicated album titles. <laughs> like Yes, 100%. <laughs> me, I am Mariah. <laughs> she has two extremes, one word or like 17 words. <laughs> yes. So what are the moments on here as one of my final questions for you that you do feel like point forward towards emancipation? I mean, you've talked about how you feel like we don't have emancipation without this. I'm curious if there's specific moments on here that feel crucial in that evolution. I do think yours feels like it could have easily fit onto emancipation Mm -hmm. because it reminds me of mine again a little bit. Mm. It reminds me of one and only a little bit. I hear circles. Those are all operating in very 70s soul. I feel like my parents would absolutely listen to these songs when they were young. (laughs) I think that's the song to me that stands out the most as pointing the way forward. Yeah. The other one I would throw in that feels very critical is the Jermaine Dupri produced The One, which isn't a great song off this record, but there are certain elements to the production and style of her vocals that reminds me of a precursor to like a shake it off yes So I think that Jermaine obviously has played an important part in her career earlier in her career and is going to obviously play an absolutely crucial role in her comeback. And I just listen to that song and I think, okay, there's some interesting connections to some of his work on Emancipation singles. So I think that the story here ends as we conclude our conversation here is if Mariah seemed over after Glitter, she really seemed over after Charm Bracelet. And I think you and I were both cognizant pop consuming individuals at this point in our lives and I remember it. I definitely was like, this woman feels like a relic of an older time. And I had moved on from her. I didn't think of her as a relevant interest to me at that point, besides being a point of nostalgia. Is that how you kind of remember the Mariah of 2003? Maybe. I don't even know if I thought that deeply about it. I think when it came out, I was just like, hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I heard through the rain and I was like, this isn't speaking to me. Right. Right. And this record very much underperforms. I mean, the album debuts, I believe, at number three on the charts, but only goes on to sell a fraction of her previous highs. I think it actually does sell better than Glitter, but it has no hit songs. Through the Rain peaks at number 87 or something on the Hot 100, which is her first album to ever not produce a top 10 single. And then that's kind of it. I mean, maybe if you didn't even see it, I think that seems to have been the general public perception of her at this point, right? Yeah, I I definitely think that was what was in the air. And we already talked about this, but when you've reached those highs, how can anyone go higher? Right. And yet, how wrong 
<laughs> Everyone was. I have two final questions for you here. If Mariah had never hit again and she just faded away after Charm Bracelet and that was kind of the end of her career, how would her legacy be similar to how we think about her now and how would it be different, do you think? Well, I think this question, when you factor in all I want for Christmas is you, it kind of throws a wrench in this. Right. Because that obviously came out in the 90s and it's had this resurgence. Yeah. And I think a lot of kids now, younger generation, that's all they know of her. It is. <laughs> Sadly for them. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of become the queen of Christmas. And so I can see an alternative reality where like charm bracelet flops, but then she does the Vegas circuit. She's still out there. She's plugging away, but she's not really relevant anymore. And then all of a sudden, all I want for Christmas is you resurfaces. And then that's what she does. I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. But if not for that, I think her career would have seemed a lot like Celine's or Whitney's, mm -hmm. where it was like towering figures in the 90s who petered out and that's it, but still respected by those who loved them. And she'd still have her lamely. She'd still have her hardcore, predominantly queer fans and female fans. But the narrative wouldn't be what it is now, which is that she has been able to come back. She is a fighter. She is a survivor. And I think mm. that's become so integral to who she is now that we would have that sort of reference for her without that added she survived. When you think about Tina Turner, Tina Turner is very different, but that was also a huge part of her narrative, too. Mm. It just feels that she would have been a different kind of icon mm. than what she is now. Yeah, I think that's completely true. I mean, there's no question that she'd still be an incredibly towering and important pop figure just sheerly based on her 90s run. But there's something about what happened, not just in terms of the sheer audacity of the comeback and how incredible it was for a 35-year-old woman to seem so over and to have perhaps one of her most signature eras, maybe her signature hit, is still ahead of her. Yeah. It's so unlikely and just one of the most remarkable moments in pop history. But I also think the calcification of Mariah the Camp Diva, we have elements of that forming in this period, but I think so much of that happens on the back of her comeback. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if we have Mariah, the celebrity, the pop cultural fixation, which is so much why she's also the queen of Christmas. Yes, that song would be a perennial classic no matter what, but so much of the extra accoutrement to that title of Mariah, the queen of Christmas is built off the back of the diva persona and the diva persona is built off the back of the comeback. Yeah. So it's hard to think of any of that happening in the same way. The twists and turns, really, it's a great tale, I have to say. This was so much fun talking to you. My last question, for you is what is an underrated Mariah song from the period that we've been discussing today? Maybe something we didn't give shine to, we didn't shout out enough that maybe just we should put the crowd onto here that you would like to send the podcast out on. I would have to say I want to go with Baby Doll mm -hmm. from Butterfly. Yeah. She worked with Missy on that. It's kind of like the roof part too, mm -hmm. but a little slower, even more sultry somehow than the roof, which is already very sultry. Mm -hmm. But just the way she talks about wrap me up nice and tight, hold me off through the night. And she just mm -hmm. keeps checking her phone because she's like, why haven't you called me yet? Mm -hmm. How she's mostly in her lower register. I love Mariah lower register. That might be my favorite melt away, yes. that kind of thing where it's just like, let me just be down here mm. so yeah baby doll mm -hmm. it's such a good song chef's kiss i love baby doll too and i also love it because it creates an actual connection to something you pointed out before which is mariah's connection to Aaliyah via missy mm -hmm. one in a million had come out just a year before so there's a connective tissue there that i really enjoy as yeah. well all right so let's go out on baby doll aisha harris thank you so so much for being on the show thank you it was a pleasure
All right, so there you have it, part two of our series on Mariah Carey. I want to say thank you to the wonderful Aisha Harris for being such an incredible guest, to Russ Martin for everything he does to help this show happen every week, and to a PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode, and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Join us next week for the final installment of our Mariah Carey triptych, where we will talk about her final run of albums, beginning with The Emancipation of Mimi, and wrapping, of course, with ranking Mariah Carey in the official Pop Pantheon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to the show right now. We're on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ LOUIEXIV on Twitter and Instagram. Merch at poppantheonpod.com. Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Gorgeous, gorgeous December 16th at Resident. Pantheon reassessment calls to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye bye. Oh.